Good morning again, everyone. Uh, uh, I'm just going to continue where we left off last week. Uh, it's such a joy and a treat, as Dean is getting some re- the much-needed rest that he, he is getting, um, to welcome brothers uh, from other churches. Uh, today is a particularly uh, special one for me because it's not just another CREC minister, uh, but it's a pastor from a PCA church, which I don't know, um, most of you know, that in a lot of presbyteries in the PCA, PCA that might not go over <laughs> so well. So I, lo- I mean, I love the unity. I love, I love this the statement that it makes. Uh, this individual, uh, actually, I've known um, all the way back to when I was first in the midst of being converted. I was at a Bible study at uh, a friend's house, a mutual friend's house, and I remember his passion, uh, the clarity with which he spoke, and he's never let me down since <laughs> since then. And I'm embarrassing him now. But if you ever wondered why Jared is so smart one of his professors so that's that's why his wife is heather they have four children uh he is the pastor the minister at uh, trinitas which meets in the evenings um so he's sharing his sunday morning with us here and and they're not with him because we all know two services for small children is a bit much for anybody uh so yeah without further ado i'd like you guys to welcome brant bosserman It is indeed a pleasure to be here with you guys today, and uh, fortunately I can tell you that uh, it isn't that strange at all for a PCA minister in the Pacific Northwest Presbytery to join a CRAC church. So uh, it's my pleasure to be here. This this week, when I was preparing for this sermon, I went to my normal coffee shop. It's a place called Vienna Coffee out on Ashway, and um, the passage that was read earlier is the passage from which I'm preaching. It's Mark Seven And when I was preparing this passage, I was, I was reading about the heart and how from the heart proceed evil thoughts and has this long list of evil thoughts from fornications to thefts to murders that are flowing out of us. And I sat back to reflect on, on this passage. And in the coffee shop that I often go to, they often play movies. And uh, they aren't too discretionary in terms of what might be on those movies. Oftentimes, they're sometimes lewd scenes and I'm always, always pointed away from it, and the, the screen's behind me. And I, and I looked over at this young man. He, he looked like he might have been 10th grade. And he was, he was sitting with his mother at a table. Her, the mother was faced this way, and he was faced this way. And I saw his eyes just glued to the TV. And I'm, I'm kind of looking at this kid, and he's not budging, he's not moving. And I, and I look up, and there's this belly dancer scene going on in the middle of the coffee shop. And this, this young man, he's just, he's just glued to it. And I, I, maybe it, it is, is the, the pastor in me, just, I, it just came out immediately. And I just put my hand up like this, and I was like, and the kid saw it and, and immediately looked over at me. And I just I sh- shook my finger like that for one second. <laughs> just couldn't help it. I had to do something. And it was just this potent image for the very sort of thing that we are reading about today. Uh, in the passage before us, it follows an incident between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes who had just come to him questioning his, his practice of cleansing and baptism. These men were concerned that Jesus' disciples didn't wash themselves properly. And Jesus, of course, he had a mouthful for these men. And, and today, the passage that we're looking at is like a follow-up to that passage. See, Jesus taught these scribes and Pharisees that um, you can read the word, you can keep up the code of cleansing, washing, 
dietary laws that prevailed in the Old Covenant, and yet at the very same time be admitting at every moment of the day evil thoughts and wicked intentions. And this raises a question for Jesus' disciples. What in the world do we make of this Old Testament law, which had so much to do with external cleansing, which had so much to do with proper diet? And what in the world does God really want from us in worship, if not these things? And so we have the passage that was read earlier. I'll read it again, various portions of it throughout this sermon. And today we're going we're gonna to consider three things at least. We're going to consider the importance of meditation on the word of God in the Christian life. We're going to consider the importance and the significance of the five senses in worship, and then we're going to consider, of course, our utter reliance on the gospel. But consider with me, therefore, Mark chapter 7, verses 14 to 15. says this, After he called the crowd to him again, after this meeting with the Pharisees and scribes, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. This statement that was made by Jesus is perplexing. In fact, it's called a parable. I know this might be difficult for some of us if we grew up in youth group and in in Bible school. Uh, Parables to us, they aren't, simple phrases and statements. You might be saying, hey, hey, that's not a parable. That wasn't a story about farming with a totally obvious and totally trite moral at the end of it. Really, this parable is a a riddle. And in the Bible, parables are actually riddles, challenging statements that demand our reflection. The disciples, on hearing this statement that nothing going into a man can make him unclean, they show concern. It's like if I came today and my thesis was that God did not so love the world that he sent his son, only begotten son immediately for all of you, that would, that would, red flags would go up. But there's one thing you know about this faith and your worship. It's that John 3.16 is a majorly important part of it. Would you believe that telling a bunch of people nurtured in the law of Moses that nothing going into a man can make him unclean, would be just as remarkable and unbelievable, just as challenging and potentially offensive, something for which you would probably want to take the minister aside after the service and ask him a few questions. So it is. Will they get their questions answered? We ought to take note of what these men probably thought when they heard this statement. Several things could have gone through their mind, each one of which is, pretty problematic. The first thing that they might have thought when Jesus said that nothing going into a man can make him unclean, but only what comes out, the first thing they might have thought was that Jesus was ranking the various old covenant laws. See, in the old covenant, there were laws pertaining to your cleanliness, not only pertaining what foods you ate and went in, but there were all sorts of laws about what could make you unclean for coming out of your body. Things like boils and strange discharges of fluid. Frankly, women, even your babies, if they came out of your flesh, would make you unclean for a period of 40 to 80 days. This is a strange thought, but on the first read and first hearing of this 
challenging riddle. The disciples might have thought Jesus was simply trying to tell us that in terms of the Old Testament, the laws that were most important in regard to your cleanliness had to do with things that came out of your body. Now, that would have been strange that Jesus so ranked the laws, but that's how it would have naturally been heard. After all, all throughout the Gospels, we see a little bit into the mindset of Pharisees and scribes. They were always interested in ranking the law. Later on in this very gospel, a man will come up to Jesus and say, which law is foremost of them all? And so they would have heard this parable, this challenging riddle, something like this. It's not so much, my friends, what goes into your body as it is what goes out of your body that concerns our God. This sort of statement although put in absolute terms, is something we're very familiar with in how we speak. Those of you who are interested in mixed martial arts, you might say something like, hey, it's not about size, it's about skill. What do you mean when you say that? You mean it's not so much about size. I think we all would recognize that a man's size would have something to do with his fighting ability, as it is even more about their skill. So it is with this parable. People might have left thinking Jesus is just a man really, really oddly concerned about the fluids that come out of a person's body. The second possibility is that people would have left thinking that no, that first explanation doesn't make sense. Jesus is flat out contradicting and overturning the very word of God in the Old Testament. The fact is, is that you have numerous passages in the Bible that would tell you that what goes into you will indeed make you unclean. As early as Noah, after he got off of the ark, God was very clear that we were never to eat animal blood. Other laws pertaining to what might go into you would tell you that you were never to eat an animal that had died a natural death. And most of all, you have a long list of animals that were indeed unclean and defiling should you even touch them, much less, much less eat them. So it says in Leviticus eleven twenty four to 28, by these, moreover, you will be made unclean. Names a whole list of animals, and it says the one who picks up their carcasses shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. With the litany of scriptures like this in mind, you can imagine why many people would have thought that Jesus was simply contradicting the very word of God itself. In fact, there are many in the history of the church who have come to the same conclusion. Marcion of Sippo, one of the earliest heretics, he excised all the books of the Old Testament from the biblical canon, said that they simply are incompatible with Christ in his message. Even today, megachurch pastor Brian Zond, he would tell us the very same thing, hacking the canon of scripture into pieces and even suggesting the Old Testament God was radically different than the one revealed in the New. See, this explanation, unfortunately, though, will not work for Jesus. In the immediate context, Jesus has already indicted the Pharisees themselves for neglecting and setting aside and invalidating the law. Jesus is not interested in setting aside the law of God. And not only that, but we should take note that when we embrace this thesis that Jesus was willing to contradict the Old Testament entirely, we end up with a Jesus who frankly contradicts himself. This is the third conclusion to which some have come. See, Jesus himself submitted to the rite of circumcision. He kept the Sabbath. He kept the Passover. He even told a man with a skin disease to go and show yourself to the priest and to offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded. He upheld what the Old Testament said about cleanliness. 
even more, Jesus instituted his own rites of cleansing by putting something on ourselves or into ourselves. Perhaps one of the most endearing passages in the Gospels is from John 13. There we are told that Jesus poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. Jesus himself told us that things going onto the body and into the body have a lot to do with our cleanliness. And so it is, some have concluded on the basis of passages like this one, that Jesus, in fact, he must even be willing to contradict himself. Jesus must have said and done certain things to appease the customs of the day, telling others to be washed and instituting washings. But Jesus himself, he taught that true worship is totally a matter of the heart. And vast traditions within Christianity have concluded that. They're called pietists, Quakers. Some of the most intense among the Quakers are the Wilburites. And the Wilburites actually hold that in a worship service, there should be no symbols, no sacraments whatsoever, not even baptism and communion. In fact, the whole service shouldn't even have a liturgy. It should be unplanned and probably should begin with completely silent worship until the Spirit, wholly and completely working on a person from within, gives them some sort of inclination to utterance. And so they believe that they're actually in line with the real Jesus. I will confess that that view of worship would make my job a lot easier today. But the fact is that none of these sorts of solutions to this riddle, this perplexing parable, are sufficient. And what this means for us, brothers and sisters, is that if we do not have an appetite for meditation on God's word, we will be given to so many blind alleys and confusing, contradictory conclusions. The truth is is that this parable teaches us the very same thing that all of the food laws in the Old Testament teach us. Namely, that we have got to be meditative on God's precepts and his commandments if we are to appreciate their real import. Ironically, had these men who were so concerned about external holiness, had they given reflection to God's word itself, they would have come to a similar sort of conclusion. In the Old Testament, one of the chief requirements making a land animal clean is that they would be an animal who chews the cud. Now, how many of us are farmers? It's not the same thing if you just have chickens in your backyard. You're not really a farmer. The truth is, is that this concept of chewing the cud is very foreign to us. What it actually refers to, to chew the cud, is an animal who eats a particular food, sends it into their stomach, digests it, and then regurgitates it, chews it again, and sends it back, and probably several times until it becomes a a milky substance. That's what it means to chew the cud. This requirement for a clean animal was meant to teach us a lesson. Those who would go about cultivating these animals on their farm were to learn something from these animals they would eat. Because chewing the cud is a metaphor for reflection and meditation on something. Even in our own language, we have phrases like, hey, hey, I've got something to tell you and uh, chew on that. What does that mean? It means, it means reflect on it. 
It means keep recalling it. Keep meditating on it. The entire purpose of many of these food laws was to teach us to be a contemplative people who would meditate on the word of God and not not stop short with contradictions or non-solutions. So it says in Psalm 119, 148, my eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on your truth. Is that the desire of our hearts, Redeemer Church? That we long for those quiet times, whether it be in the morning or the evening, to give ourselves over to meditation. We're told again and again in Scripture, things like this, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of man to search it out. It is our glory to meditate on the word of God and to ask what is our Lord really attempting to communicate to us. It is our glory to do the searching. Remarkably, the only alternative if we are not given to meditation on the word is that we will be given over to the hearts that we have, which frankly emit on a regular basis evil thoughts and evil desires. Even if we were to come to know understanding today as to what Jesus meant in this parable, in this saying, we ought to glory in the privilege we have to meditate on it. Very thankfully, however, (laughs) I've done some meditating on it, as I have many before me, and there's much to be said about what Jesus did mean. To understand what Jesus meant, we can look at his own explanation His disciples asked him, what did you mean by this parable? And we're told in verse 18 in Mark chapter 7, and he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? How many of us are ready to wave our hand? Yes, I am (laughs) lacking in understanding. Can you help me? He says, do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because, and he tells us why, it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart, proceed evil thoughts. When we hear Jesus' explanation, we can begin to make sense of what he means and how he has no intention of contradicting God's word. Jesus tells us that he is using the words clean and unclean in this passage in a different sense than in that ritual sense that it is often used in the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament, to be clean or unclean are not moral statuses. They're strictly ritual. That is to say, the person who had an issue of blood that rendered them unclean was not to be viewed as immoral. And the person who happened to be clean because they hadn't been in contact with dead bodies or hadn't been in contact with unclean animals, to be clean was not to be righteous. Instead, they were ritual statuses that were supposed to give us walking images of what righteousness and unrighteousness looked like. So it was with that clean animal. That clean animal that we would see in the ox or in the lamb or or sheep. They would chew the cud. That was a walking image for a contemplative sort of being as we are to be in respect to God's law and his word. It's not difficult to see how dead bodies would be a natural image for spiritual death and unresponsiveness to God such that if we came into contact with them, it would be an image for courting death 
and spiritual unresponsiveness. See, the problem is, though, with these ritual differences, there is a natural tendency on our part to lapse into mistaking the sign for the reality. I mean, think about it. In cartoons, okay, Disney cartoons, the beautiful characters are always the good guys. Isn't that right? And of course, that beauty that we might see on the hero or the heroiness or heroine, that beauty is intended to be for us a sort of image for a good character of heart. But of course, how many of our young kids leave movies like that longing for the image rather than the reality? Longing to be beautiful like Belle rather than one who respects her father. This very same tendency was alive and well amongst God's people. The Pharisees and even the disciples seem to be given to this error. We need not only look at our kids, we do the same thing as adults. How many of us look at the outward tokens of success amongst maybe men around us, men in our household, and we take that for a godly character itself? When in fact there are those who would oftentimes and perhaps have the various tokens of worldly success and not themselves be godly. What Jesus does in this passage, therefore, is he uses the words clean and unclean to refer directly to the moral conditions which they signify and which the Pharisees mistook an external cleanliness for. And he lets them know any food that you eat, every food that you put into your body is going to pass through the stomach and exit. It's not going to stay there and it's going to bypass your person. It says specifically in verse 19, it doesn't go into your heart. We should all be clear, heart doesn't just mean emotions as it does in the English language. Your heart is your person, your intellect, your will, your character, what makes you, you, the entire internal counsel of your being that you can so easily hide from the external world. Jesus tells these men that nothing you eat can change that heart. In fact, the heart, the heart is what emits evil thoughts daily. And in that respect, the heart is unclean. Not because every heart is ritually set aside, is defiled by the law, but because every single heart is daily giving way to these sorts of things that truly separate us from God, our iniquities. And likewise, when it says Jesus declared all foods clean, he wasn't contradicting Moses, saying that they are all ritually okay. He was saying that in and of themselves, they are all good, just as God said when he made them originally in Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 25. And so we have the true import of the ceremonial law put before us. Jesus is essentially saying that we all must wash ourselves and be washed in faith. That as dirt is removed from the body, so God can remove the sinfulness of our soul. That when we eat these clean foods and we avoid these unclean foods, we must not think for a moment, these Old Testament Jews, that because you do these things, you can win God's affection for it. Rather, you must do so with an awareness that you are a sinner and that you need an external cleanliness from God to enter you. One that will not ultimately leave by the digestive process, but one that will stay. 
When we take into account Jesus's point, we really have to reflect for a moment on what God really wants from our worship. These Pharisees fell into the air of thinking that God really wanted from us this sort of purely ritual, external holiness and cleanliness. And they missed almost entirely their defiled hearts. One way to consider this question together, brothers and sisters, is uh, if we thought of God as having five senses just like ourselves, which of the senses are we attempting to stimulate when we come here every Lord's Day? This is a good question. Whether literally or metaphorically, what are we trying to accomplish before our God today? Let's consider the first one. Let's take our sense of sight. It is without question the most valued sense among men. You consider sight, it is a remarkable thing. There's no other sense that can take in so many distinct objects at once. Make us feel like we know each and every one of them with one gaze or glance. Additionally, sight is remarkable because it puts us in contact with objects that are the farthest away from us of all the senses. What's remarkable about sight is you can go out on a clear night, perhaps like this one, and you can see astral bodies that are literally billions, even light years, so they tell us away. Sight has this incredible capacity to reach out and touch things in a fashion that your hands and your limbs simply cannot. And so it is that we have phrases in our language like seeing is believing, and we tell people, when I see it with my own two eyes, then I'll believe it. You know what's incredible is that, that God's gain in worship is almost never described in terms of sight. We never have an instance in the Bible where it says, and God was well pleased with the beauty of the lamb and his wrath was appeased. It doesn't ever say that. God certainly does beautifully adorn his house and his priests. He does that. But that's something God does in worship. He's the one who makes the house beautiful gives us instructions for how to do so. In fact, remarkably in worship, when an animal is offered to God, it has to be skinned first. God takes the skin off. This external show of beauty and brightness is removed. In fact, in the mercy seat of God in the Holy of Holies, there are two angels that are cast in gold, and they put out their wings like this at all times, covering God's eyes, because sight, frankly, is not the metaphor that is used to describe God's pleasure in worship. This is because sight, despite all of the virtues that we discuss, it can be most deceiving. Because sight never gets below your skin. What you see with your own two eyes cannot penetrate into the heart, cannot penetrate into the flesh below. It's the remarkable thing about sight, it seems to have so much promise. But everything we know from Scripture and God's own relating to us, it is not, it is not at all the chief sense. And see, this must raise a question for us. We've got to ask, why did we come to worship today? Was it to show God certain motions, to pass through the liturgy, to present yourself here as if you have exhausted your duty? I ask you, is your mind totally preoccupied with something else? You come into this place with your mind and your heart elsewhere. 
This is one of those remarkable things that comes up again and again, the problem of church dress, us assessing one another by what we are wearing, not suggesting for a moment that our dress might not be an expression of godliness, but it is not the essence of it. Because the reality is in Mark 7, 21 to 22, we're told evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. These things are coming out of our heart all the time, and our eyes cannot see those things. Now, so let's try another one. Is it, is it our sounds? Is it the words that come out of our mouth, the songs that we sing? Is that, is that what pleases God here today? This is a valid question. I mean, sound, we should note, does take a prominent place in worship after David. We have the Psalter, uh, 148 psalms to be read and to be sung. And we ought to note as well for us, sound is probably the second most valued sense that we have. See, sound is second in its capacity to perceive distant objects, right? Something can make a loud noise and reaches out and touches you. But sound is probably first in its capacity to grab our attention, no matter what condition we are in. Because see, here's the thing about a sign that you see with your eyes. You've got to be pointed toward it. But a sound can reach out and grab you from any direction, whether you are pointed this way or that, whether you are waking or sleeping, sounds have the capacity to grab you. In fact, sound, therefore, is the most profound of the senses in terms of its capacity to communicate. We communicate with words and sounds. But would you believe yet again that God does not chiefly regard what can be heard in our worship? Never does the Bible say, and God was well pleased with the beautiful sounds of the livestock that were placed on the altar. The mooing and the bawing were music to his ears. Never says that God's wrath was removed by virtue of the song that was sung. And this is because sounds, like sight, are remarkably capable of deceiving us. Just before this passage, we read, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We can come and honor God with our lips. We can have this holiness that sits on the externals of our bodies and comes out of our mouths, but does not in the least reflect our hearts. Even therefore in the new covenant, when we are told to gather and to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, it says singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Because if we should do that solely with our lips then we have not offered something pleasing to God. I ask, why did you come here today? Was it to give God our verbal praises, our words? I don't want to diminish the fact that words can be powerful vehicles to convey what is in our heart, but they can also lie, brothers and sisters. This is the problem even with our own evaluation of churches. How many of us are prepared to evaluate the quality of the church on the basis of the church music, the rhetoric of the preaching, is this us evaluating the church in different terms than it's evaluated by our Lord? How many of us are deeply concerned with this external quality over the joy and true passion for the word being emitted by the brothers and sisters to be found in it? 
So we turn now to two senses that I don't think any of you would suppose are probably what we are doing to bless our God today. I don't think most of us think we're coming here to bless God via physical touch. The Bible never says that in worship we are giving our Lord a spiritual back rub. It just doesn't say that. Physical touch, we should note, it is probably first in its capacity of all of our senses to convey our possession of something. This is because it requires proximity. And we would note that, for example, in our language we have a really deplorable saying, but nevertheless instructive, the married men, you can look, but you can't touch. You've probably heard this before. What, what does that convey? Your eyes can go all sorts of places, even beyond what you possess, but what you can touch implies real ownership. We even note at the beginning, we have a prohibition to touch the forbidden tree because God owns it, and we don't have access to feel it. We ought to note that God does not chiefly regard what can be felt in the Old Testament or the New First of all, God's not physically present. You may have noticed that. You would have liked to have had Jesus preach the message today. I know, you got me. He's not physically present in that personal sense that we would like him to be. And frankly, God never expresses his delight in the texture, the hardness, or the physical temperature of things. Maybe one exception when God describes us as either hot or cold and being willing to spit us out of his mouth if we're lukewarm. But we also ought to note that the Old Testament, it doesn't present God. It doesn't present God as preoccupied with tangible, even monetary gifts that we would give him. You know, we're told in Matthew 23, 23, these scribes and these Pharisees, they get a woe from Jesus. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. Again, brothers and sisters, I I mean not to diminish the value of us offering God our tithes and offerings and worshiping through it. But we can remarkably do that and deprive him, deprive him of any sort of true spiritual worship. In fact, God doesn't need anything from us. That's noteworthy. Uh, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So we've got to consider that God is not ultimately benefited by what tangible things we would give him. There must be more. So I ask you, why did you come here today? To give God something tangible? <laughs> what do you value in worship? Notably, in the ancient world, it was chiefly sensual. Worship was all based on what sorts of things you could experience with your senses. And I expect to increasingly see churches gathered around uh, smoking marijuana in our culture today as sensuality increasingly becomes our biggest sort of vice. But we ask maybe, what about taste? Is God most of all pleased with what he tastes here today? We should note that for us, taste probably ranks first of all of our senses in terms of intimacy. See, the objects that you taste must not only be near to you, they've got to be in your mouth, okay? The eyes can see things billions of miles away, but in terms of what the mouth can taste, it has got to be right here especially therefore associated with sensuality. It's especially also associated with our sustenance because frankly, nothing that feeds us can feed us except by passing through this organ of taste. And so we ought to note though, taste can also often give us an initial read on something which is incorrect. Has anything ever tasted good and made you feel sick? 
Things can taste good and yet deceive. It's particularly capable of deception like all of these other senses we have considered. And never does the Bible describe worship in terms of God being fed by us. This entirely sets apart the biblical system of sacrifice from the pagan equivalents in a variety of other cultures. God does not need physical sustenance. We're told in Isaiah 40, verse 28, Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not become weary or tired. He gives strength to the weary. Notably, in worship, we, uh, we never feed God. He actually always feeds us. He is always the one feeding. He is the host, and we are doing the eating. We ought to know, even metaphorically, we are not here to feed God with encouragements or even with praise as if his spirit were famished. It's not. God is eternally blessed and satisfied with himself. So why did we come to worship today? Too often it really is to do something like to satiate a divine craving or to appease his wrath as if we are giving something to feed this angry deity, perhaps. This leads us with another, or rather the fifth of our senses, which is smell. Is God most pleased with what he smells? We only have one more sense, so we've narrowed it down. We ought to consider, for us, where does smell rank, do you think, in human senses? How many of you have ever said something like, you know, I could live without sight, I could live without sound, but man... I couldn't live if I couldn't smell things. I've never heard anybody say that. I would submit to you that smell is surely the very least valued of all of our senses. Frankly, its objects are the most fleeting and evanescent. You don't get to keep them except in fragrances sometimes or smelly candles, but even those, they dissipate rather quickly. And yet remarkably, we have this idea that smell acquaints us with a reality almost unlike any other sense. If you watch any mobster movie, you're, you will hear the phrase, I smell a rat. What does that mean? It means that despite everything I see, everything they're saying, everything they're doing, what I can touch, even the dinners we can eat together and taste, there is something here beneath all of those externals that is being emitted and cannot escape my senses. The idea is that smell can acquaint us with things that our other senses cannot. A meal can look good. Meat might look fine, but you give it the smell test to really know to really know if it's acceptable. We have phrases in our language like, I smell something fishy. What does that mean? It means that despite all of your capacity to evaluate by sight, to evaluate what something someone says, something is not right here. This is the remarkable thing about scent. And the other thing about scent that you can note is that our scent is probably that feature of our being of which we are the very least conscious. How many of us think we smell? Thought about calling this sermon we smell, but I, we stink, but it could be confusing. See, the thing about scent is that we all have one. You know, the animals can tell. We go out on a trail, they can smell us a mile away. 
We all think we don't have a scent. But it is there and it is powerful and is potent. And this is a remarkable observation about this sense. Because beneath all of our airs, our appearance, our words, our possessions, our flavor, our external adherence to a variety of ritual laws, there is a character that most of us are not even aware is there. So the Bible has in mind when it speaks of our heart. Remarkably, the other four senses, they can describe and be the seat of specific sins. We think of sight and this list of sins here. We have deeds of coveting and envy, sins of sight. We think of sound. Sound can be the source or words of sin, deceit and slander. Touch can be a source of sin, thefts and murders. Taste can be the same. This lust for sensuality and fornication, adulteries, and even sensuality itself, our passage mentions. How many of you can think of any sins of smell? I mean, it can be offensive if you don't smell good. I got that. But sins associated with smell. I would submit to you that the reason for this is because smell is the best way of describing our sin nature itself. Our scent is potent. And to be a sinner is to simply smell all the time. See, this means, this means that that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles him. We are told this and we're told from within, out of the man proceed evil thoughts. See, our scent isn't even like an action or specific sins that we engage in. It is just something we are admitting at all times. And Jesus just focuses on the thoughts themselves. Let's even skip the actions for now. We smell like sinners. In the Old Testament, when one is offensive, that offense is usually described in terms of smell. The people of Israel have been telling Moses that they need to leave and go out and worship. They come to, to Moses, excuse me, told Pharaoh this. They come to Moses and they say, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. Moses, because you have made us odious. That is, our aromas to stink in Pharaoh's sight. You've made us offensive. It is this scent that proceeds from within that best describes our situation. And if these men of the, of the Pharisees and scribes had meditated on the meaning of the law, they would have understood that an external beauty, external sounds could never make them right with God. They had to be changed from within. And so in the Bible, what we do in worship above all else, what God is wanting here today is he wants a soothing aroma. Isn't that remarkable? The sense that we devalue is the very sense which best describes what God is after. Told in Leviticus 1.9, and this is repeated all throughout the book of Leviticus, and the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. The Pharisees, the disciples, all the Jews should have known that God has always been concerned about the heart, the person, the character, and the aroma of the worshipers. So why are you here today? Is it just to show up, having neglected perhaps entirely the holy calling that has been laid upon us? 
Have you neglected the duty of, say, correcting a brother who's in sin? Have you neglected the duty of reconciling with those with whom you are in a dispute? Are your thoughts evil, perhaps even at this very moment? This takes us to our final point, the reliance on the gospel. We're told in Mark chapter 7, verse 20 and following, some of the most painful things for all of us to hear, and that is that our aroma is most offensive. That which proceeds out of the heart of man, not some men, all men, that is what defiles man. For from within, out of the heart of man proceed evil thoughts and fornications and thefts and murders and adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile man. Brothers and sisters, we have bad news. Bad news that was a tough pill to swallow, not only by the Pharisees and scribes, but by Jesus' own disciples. What defiles us in the ultimate moral sense, not just a ritual external code, is us constantly emitting evil thoughts like a foul scent. Our sin is not what we do. Our sin is not a set of actions. It is what we are. And we must become immune to the scent. Bad news gets worse. Our aromas, Jesus tells us, cannot be changed by any bath with water or anything that we wear. Any song that we sing, any tangible thing that we possess, or anything we taste and eat, so long, so long as it just goes through the stomach and bypasses our soul. And the, the penalty for this sin is death. We are told the wages of sin is death. This offensive scent cannot be in God's presence. But thank God, the gift, the free gift of God, is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The way to express this in terms of the entire Old Testament system is that we must have our sin, our stench, transferred to a sacrificial substitute. And in the Old Covenant, what we would do is we would lay our hands on the skin, on the externals of an animal who would go and be killed to have that skin removed. This is what we would do. And then that animal, that substitute, we are told while on the fire, would offer up a soothing aroma to God, and that would produce a covering of cloud over us that we who stink might be in the presence of God a soothing aroma. This is the language of the New Testament. This is the language of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus bears our stench, our sinful offense before God, and he gives us his righteousness, making a covering over us. He washes us not merely with water, but with his spirit. And he doesn't feed us with mere bread and wine. But if we would believe with his body and blood, some food that does not simply go into the stomach and bypass our person, but something that sanctifies us and reforms us from within. Jesus in declaring and reminding these men that all foods were clean and then going to the cross for us, he indeed he set aside in the cross these ritual codes because he fulfilled them. And so we're told in Ephesians 5, 1 to 2, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. 
just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Brothers and sisters, if we want to smell good in this house and offer God pure worship, then here is what we must know. We must come here to celebrate the aroma of Christ as he is given to us as a gift. That, my friends, smells good and is pleasing, pleasing to our God. Do we come here in active reliance on the Holy Spirit who is in us that we will actually be conformed to the scent and character of Christ so that we will actually be more pleasing and holy and indeed a soothing aroma before our God. We must consider the means of grace that we rely on. How do you use your baptism and the Lord's Supper? How do they work in you? Do they woo you to deeper faith in the Lord Jesus daily? If not, they are just water on the body and bread in the body, both of which will exit bypassing your soul. How do you use the word as it is preached and even spoken, not just by the minister, but as it is on your tongue in song and confession? Do you simply hear them? Do you simply speak them? Or are you brought to a deeper appreciation and reliance on the gospel Jesus, he commands in verse 14, listen to me, all of you, and understand. Understand that the thoughts of your heart and your aroma might not just be filled with wickedness. We're told in Philippians 4.18, the tithes and offerings are a fragrant aroma unto God when they are offered in thanksgiving to and reliance upon Christ. I ask you, do your prayers, your prayers reflect a longing for a new character, a new aroma, for the person of Christ to dwell more richly in you? See, our aroma, if anything, it is like constant prayer and thanksgiving, replacing these wicked thoughts with holy ones, not by our own effort, but by the Spirit in us. Told in 2 Corinthians 2.14 that when we're these sorts of people, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. It says that we are a sweet aroma when we are given to thankfulness in Christ. We are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved. Our aroma even goes out and smacks a world that smells nothing but defilement with a different scent. But even ask you this, and I'll leave on this note. We, we did a prayer study at, at our church for a while, uh, Matthew Henry's classic work, A Way to Pray. If you've never read it, well, it'll make you feel like your prayer life is really, really messed up. But it'll also help you <laughs> to, to get that on track. But it gives us this prayerful meditation before the Lord's Day. And I wish I could say that my wife and I did this every Saturday night. Um, we haven't. But on the ones that we have, we have left strangely blessed and we have gone into the Lord's day with our hearts and our minds and our thoughts in the right places. And I'm going to read it to you. It says, On the evening before the Lord's day, prepare yourselves through prayer. Though the sun will rise tomorrow in the same way it does on every other day of the week, let us remember that tomorrow is the Sabbath of the Lord. Help us to recognize that it is a high day, blessed, holy, and honorable to you. 
Give us an abundance of grace to sanctify the day, even as you have sanctified it from creation. Do wonders among us tomorrow. Enable us to set our minds on a proper work of preparation since the Sabbath is now dawning near. When you saw everything you had made in six days, you declared that all was very good. But despite the perfections of our first father, we have all offended in many ways. Yet as we come to worship in repentance and trust in Christ's blood, wash not only our feet, but also our hands, our head, and our heart. Cleanse us so that we can teach transgressors your ways. Let us use this day to the fullest encircling your altar, declaring our thanksgiving and recounting all your wonder, wondrous works. This prayer is is not simply for the motions, but for the very thoughts and meditations of our hearts. Let us come together and worship that we could be a soothing aroma. Let us do the things God asked us to do, but let us do them in reliance on Jesus Christ, whose aroma alone can conform ours unto God's. And let us, if we do not know the Lord, let us receive him today. If you are with us today and you don't know the Lord, come talk with Mike after the service. Come talk with me, any one of the elders. We will gladly, gladly walk you through the gospel and, and Lord willing, introduce you to this Christ who changes our very aroma. Bow your heads with me. Mighty Lord, in many ways the news that maintaining an external holiness is not sufficient, it's not even ultimately meaningful, is very difficult news. Those are the various sorts of things that our conscience tells us we are capable of. When confronted, Lord God, with the fact that we have an aroma that is displeasing to you and that it comes out of our heart with such regularity, Lord, we are left hopeless. Hopeless, save for in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who can be an entirely pure and soothing aroma imputed to us, even as he bears the offense of our sin. Mighty God, may we leave this place preoccupied with this truth, meditating on it, meditating on it, Lord God, given over to it. May we leave this place a soothing aroma because we have the Spirit of Christ in us. And Lord, when we come to the sacraments, just as when we have come to the word, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be present with much, much more than just bread and wine that will exit the body. That you would be present in the fullness of your person to conform us to your image. In Jesus' name we pray, Father, by your spirit.